you would not really consider Job as being a wisdom book, but it's classified as such. And I would contend that there's a lot of wisdom in the book of Job. Now, it may not, you may not consider it a, a wisdom book because it just doesn't read like, like Proverbs. We consider Proverbs a, a wisdom book. Um, you know, Proverbs 6, 6, go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. That sounds like some wisdom in there. Or Proverbs 26, 20, for lack of fuel, the fire, or lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisper, contention quiets down. There's some wisdom in that, in that proverb. But there is great wisdom in the book of, of Job. Only it's in a narrative form. It's not in these little short uh, um, sayings like in Proverbs. Now, I don't intend to go through uh, the whole book of Job tonight. We're not going to do even a 50,000-foot flyover. Um Rather, I'd like to take some time and take like a 5,000-foot perusal through the first two chapters of Job. And hopefully, by looking at Job, we will gather, we will glean from his experience wisdom in how we, as believers, ought to react to troubles, to difficulties in our life, um, adversities in our life. You know, Paul writes in Romans 15, 4, it says, For whatever is written in earlier times was written for our instruction. It was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So things that were written in the Old Testament are for us today. It, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament was written for us today. And we'll, we'll take a look at that. So um, tonight I've got uh, a few objectives. Uh, how should we see adversity or rough times in our life? How should we respond to those? Um, what should be our response? Uh, how should we c- cultivate the proper biblical response to adversity? So to set the stage, I want you to envision yourself as an audience in a theater. An audience in a theater. Uh, maybe you've gone to the Muni or the Rep and seen a play or a production in one of those two uh, two places. Uh, maybe you were in a school play. Now, I know we got a lot of characters out there, but maybe you were part of a play. Uh, maybe you have had your kids act out the Christmas story on Christ's birth during Christmas time. Well, I want you to see yourself in a theater watching the events unfold before us as we see 
the first part of the production of Job. First production of Job. Act 1. It covers chapter 1. Act 2 covers chapter 2. We will see seven scenes in these two acts. And these uh, two acts also have major settings in them. One setting is in heaven. The other is on earth. The props will change in between settings, sometimes within a setting. The rest of the production of Job, you will have to read for yourself. Okay? All right. Okay, so that's the stage. And and the purpose of this is that so that we can see what's going on. But as a narrative, we get the the privilege of seeing everything that is going on. All right? All right, so scene one, the curtain pulls back. And uh, the narrative begins. The narrator begins his... His introduction to this. We see this in Job chapter 1 and verse 1 through 3. And I'm going to be reading from the Legacy Bible tonight. All right? So follow along. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were also 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pairs of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the sons of all the East. Okay, so this is the narrator. Main character is Job. He's in the land of Uz. This is Most likely the uh, south of the Dead Sea. Uh, It's in the land of Eden. Um, Job is there, as I stated. He is a man that is blameless, morally upright. It's not like he wasn't able to sin, but he was morally upright. Um, He was an outstanding citizen, if you want to put it that way. Uh, upright, correct in his judgments, and straightforward. He didn't try to deceive people. All right? Uh, fearing God, he had the correct perspective of God, who he is and what he can do. Turning away from evil, a departing from evil situations, he did not carouse around with other people. Whenever there was a sinful situation come up he left okay uh he would be what we would call a good christian man right he had a family he was a family man uh we would consider him having a very large family he had 10 kids that's a pretty good sized family he was also a wealthy guy He invested in the stock market and was doing very well. Now, maybe some of you will catch up to what I just said. But anyway, uh, he had a lot of employees that worked for him. He was well known. He was a great man, 
greatest man in all the area. Okay? So this is Job. Let's go now. Scene two. We're looking on earth and we see the family of Job. Verses four through five. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house for each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now, it happened when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and set them apart as holy. And he would rise up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. Now, what do we see here? We see a family that got together, kind of like what we do for Christmas and Thanksgiving. They got together, had feasts. They got along with one another. They spent time with one another. We also see Job and his concern for the spiritual welfare of his family. He offered up burnt offerings. Was he a priest? No. He wasn't a priest. This event probably occurred uh, sometime before Moses was even on the scene. He acted on their behalf. Okay? Why? Why did he do that? It says there, just in case sin had occurred where? In their hearts. In their hearts. Of the family members. These offerings were not a one-time deal, but a continuous action. And interesting enough that it says in their hearts. Not in action necessarily, but where does sin start? It's in the heart. That's where it's at. We talk about the transformation of somebody's heart to become a believer. That transformation is necessary. And it's a work of God in the hearts of people. Okay, so we see this family. Now we go to scene three. The scene changes. Now we're in heaven. We're witnessing a conversation in heaven. And this is verses six through twelve. It says, Now it was the day that sons of God came to stand before Yahweh, And Satan also came among them. And Yahweh said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Then Yahweh said to Satan, Have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God without cause? Have you not made a hedge around about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But set forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Then Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only not send 
Only do not send forth your hand toward him. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. So we we were down on earth. Now we went up to heaven. We hear this conversation going on between Satan and God. The main character here is God. Who is in control? God is. And how do we know that? Because Satan comes up and stands before God. God doesn't go to Satan. Satan comes up to God. God asks a question. Satan replies. God points out Job as being blameless, right, upright, fearing God, and turning from evil. Notice that this is God's description of Job. Not man's, God's description. (laughs) I'd like to have God say that of me. That I'm upright. That I'm blameless. Fearing God and turning from evil. That would be a wonderful description to hear from, from God himself, would it not? Anyway, Satan makes accusations of God as to why Job is blameless and upright. You you put this hedge around him. Around him and his house and all that he has, he's untouchable. You've blessed him in all his works, all his possessions. Take away your protection and he will curse you. He will curse you. God says to Satan... To do whatever you want to his stuff, only you cannot physically harm him. So here we see God. He's in control of this whole thing. He's in control of everything. Not only concerning Job, but concerning each one of our lives. He's in control of. Nothing can occur to Job without the consent of God. Does Job know what this conversation is all about? Does he have any idea that this is occurring? No. He's enjoying the good life. He's enjoying the good life. Doesn't know what's going on. Scene four. The uh, scene changes again. We're back on earth. And we hear four reports from four employees of Job. Starting verse 13 through 19. Now it happened that on the day that his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother, the firstborn, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabines fell on them and took them. They also struck down the young men with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the young men and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans set up three companies and made a raid on the the camels and took them and struck down the young men with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother. 
the firstborn. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness, touched the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, here we have a time when the the kids are having a feast, having a good time, and we see this messenger come up and tells him that part of his stock has been taken away and some of Job's employees have been killed. All right. Well, while that's being said, another mission uh, messenger comes up and says more of his stock has burned up and so are his employees burned up. Okay, while he's still talking, a third messenger comes says another portion of his stock is taken and employees killed. This is total liquidation of all his investments. His retirement plan has just gone to zero. He has nothing. He has nothing. While he's talking, a messenger comes up, fourth messenger comes up to Joel, While the third one is speaking now and says a strong wind like a tornado comes through and causes the house the children were in to collapse. All the children died. The slaves had died. This is tragedy in the nth degree. Not only has his retirement plan gone to zero, he has no employees to build back his business. And worse yet, the heirs have died. He has nothing in one day, not over a year's time, in one day, all is lost, everything, everything. This is the worst day in Job's life. He could not have had a worse day than this. The shock of all this coming on him must have been immense. I mean, he kept hearing this, these messengers coming to him, one after another, tearing of all this death and destruction and stealing of his property. What does one say? Where does one go in all this? This is devastating. Scene five. Chapter 1, verses 20 through 22 says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell into fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And through all this, Job did not sin nor did he give offense to God. That is amazing passage of Scripture. Amazing. He shows outward grief by the tearing of his robes and shaving of his head. He is mourning the passing of his family, the loss of his asset. He grieves. It's not just shedding a a tear or two. But it's a gut-wrenching grief 
I don't know if any of you have experienced a loss of a loved one. It is, it is gut-wrenching. But here he has lost his ten kids. His ten kids. It'd be like crying your eyes out and not eating for, for days. This is Job. You don't shave or, or take a bath. You're just in a in a shock mode of what's going on. You're in a total state of shock and grief. What does he do? He falls to the ground and worships God. He acknowledges all things, his stock portfolio, uh, his kids, everything comes from God. Job does not blame God for what has happened. Job blesses God. He doesn't sin. He does not go and start hitting his wife or committing suicide. He worships God. Note that in verse 22, Job doesn't say, why me? Why is all this happening to me? Woe is me. Why have I lost so much when there's others around here of less character that this should be happening to? Is that kind of how we respond? Why me? He doesn't wonder what sin he's committed. Rather, he fears God. He doesn't curse God, nor does he blame God for what has occurred. He worships God. In humility, he worships God. This is the end of Act 1. Intermission. We have intermission. So what have we seen in Act 1? We've witnessed a man who, is great, who had a great family. They got along with one another. Job looked out for the spiritual welfare of the family. He was in touch with what was going on. In the family, he was a business owner. He had a great number of employees. Based on how he treated his family members, I imagine he treated his employees with respect. He was a man of notoriety throughout the country. He had great wealth. But his whole life came crashing down on him. All his wealth, all his family has has died. Undoubtedly, this news went out throughout the land. I I can see it. Job, a blameless man, loses everything. That would be the headlines on us today. Okay, the next act is about ready to begin. Take your seats. Act two. We are viewing heaven at this time. And... uh, we see a conversation again between God and Satan. Chapter 2 of Job, verses 1 through 6. And again, it was the day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them to stand himself before Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Satan, Where do you come from? And Satan answered, 
um, answered Yahweh and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking about on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. He is blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity. So you incited me against him to swallow him up in vain. Satan answered Yahweh and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, send forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you in your face. So Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Now, we do not know how much time passed since the first encounter between God and Satan. We don't know that. We don't know how much time passed between the tragic day and this next conversation. We do see the same thing. Satan stands before God. He has to because God is in control. He is in control. God asks him the same question before. Uh, Satan replies the same. God asks him again uh, about uh, his servant Job. Um, And again, this is God's assessment of Job. God's assessment, not man's. And then God adds, he still holds fast his integrity. Even though you tried to incite me to the point of swallowing him up, it was all in vain. It didn't work, Satan. Didn't work. Satan responds, "Yeah, well, that he he'll he will curse you if you do something to his body." And God says, "He's in your power. Only spare his life." Now, did did Job know anything about this conversation? Nope. He didn't know anything. It's interesting to know that God puts boundaries on Satan as to what he can do and what he cannot do. You can't kill him. That was God's mercy displayed upon Job. His mercy displayed upon Job. Scene seven. This scene changes from heaven. Now we're looking at earth and we're seeing we're seeing uh, what happens to Job. Job chapter two, verses seven and eight. Then Satan went up out from the presence of Yahweh and struck Job with terrible boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. And he took, he being Job, took potsherds to scrape himself while he was still sitting among the ashes. Satan smote Job with these boils. Now, these are infections. They're infections where? They're infections from the, the base of his foot to the top of his head. What that means is that he could not walk around 
for feeling the pain. He could not sit down for feeling the pain. He could not lay down for feeling the pain. He was in pain constantly. And he was scraping these boils to open them up to allow the pressure out. He was sitting in the ashes outside the city in a most humiliating place. The loss that Job felt in losing his family and his wealth was emotional. Now he's suffering physically, not just emotionally. It's one thing to have an infection on one or two places on your body, but Job, he had them all over. And he goes outside the city in the ash heap and tries to get some relief of the pain that he is experiencing. Job is in a miserable state. Loss of family. Now physically, he's in dire straits. The scene doesn't change, but we see the the entry of his wife. Verses 9 and 10. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the wickedly foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What do we see here? We see his wife coming. Instead of encouraging words, she tells him to go and throw away his integrity. To curse God and die. Get rid of the torment you're experiencing. She could see the pain he was in. Why go through all this and the loss of the family? Go ahead and commit suicide. Get relief that way. Many would say that it had been easy for Job to end it right there. Might think that he was justifying in doing so with the misery that he had to endure. Life is not worth the living. There are some in this world that would end their life with this type of thinking. They would commit suicide. Same scene here, but we see the entry of three friends of Job. Verses 11 through 13. Then Job's three friends hear of all this calamity that they had come upon that had come upon him. So they came each one from his own place. Eliphaz, the Telmite, Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to console him and comfort him. They lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And each of them tore their robe and they threw dust over their head toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days, seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. His pain was very great. They'd gotten word about this 
extraordinary case of events that happened to this blameless man. There's a Greek proverb that says, ill news is swift of foot. Ill news is swift of foot. These three friends of Job come. The friends came from different parts of the area. Their coming was a deliberate act. It wasn't like they just ran into each other and said, hey, let's go to this town and see Job. No, it was a deliberate act. When the friends see him, Job is in such physical state that they didn't even recognize him. Have you ever seen people that were so ill that you wouldn't even known who they were unless you were told? That was Job. His friends mourned and wept. They tore their robes through dust in the air. The same action took place here as what Job did, uh, hearing about the news of his livestock and family. An act of grieving. They're grieving with him. They're grieving with him. The friends sat there with him for seven days and nights without saying a word. They were completely silent. They humbled themselves with Job in the ash heap. They didn't go to the local inn and stay there. They were with him during this time. The friend saw the great pain that Job was in. This ends Act 2. The rest of the Acts, you'll have to read. You'll have to read. Some closing thoughts here. This, these events did not occur because Job was disobedient to God. There was no sin in Job that caused God to afflict him. We see that fact that Job was a blameless man. He had a correct perspective on God. There was nothing that Job did to incite this at all. We cannot say that when rough times come our way that they are a result of sin. They may be because we suffer consequences for our sin, but they may not be. They might not be. Remember what Jesus said concerning the blind man when he was asked the question, who had sinned? Jesus' response was, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Hmm. I think that's instructional for us. These events may occur in our life so that God can work in us to display his greatness. You don't know. I don't know. We're not in heaven listening to the conversation. The events that Job experienced, the second thing, Job, the events that Job experienced were ordained by God. We see this in the submission of Satan to God. These were not just random acts that occurred to Job. Have you ever heard people say that God is trying to teach them something through this adversity? 
And maybe so, or it may not be. Have you heard the conversation in heaven? Are you just content in not knowing the why, but that God is in control? Sometimes we go through difficulties in our lives so that we're able to help others later on in life. This is ordained by God for this to occur. Look in 2 Corinthians, or you don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do we know that's occurring? No. It may be. And you may not know that. Until later. Until later. Three, what happened to Job happened without his knowledge of the conversation of heaven. He did not know that God had pointed him out to Satan as being blameless and having integrity. If Job would have had any say in the matter, he would have pointed to one of his buddies. Go sick it on him. He did not know that God spared his life from death. We don't know what God is doing, neither is it required that we do know. We like to know, but we should not focus on knowing the why. What we should focus on is our response to the adversity. That is the issue, our response. How do we respond? Do we give glory to God? Do we worship him? Do we accept what we have or what we don't have? Do we accept the good with the bad as being ordained by God? Or do we sin with our lips by complaining? Our dissatisfaction is dissatisfaction with God. It's dissatisfaction with God. For Job understood God is sovereign in all things. We need to understand God's sovereignty in our own lives. You are here tonight because of God's sovereignty. This is not a mistake that you're here. We should recall God's goodness. All that you have and all those that love you. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's what Job was doing. He was giving thanks to God. We can read scriptures that tell of his might and his love. The book of Psalms is a great place to go for that. Psalms 92, 93, 95, 97. Check out Job in one of the later Acts, chapters 38 through 41. Five, Job's wife may have had the best of intentions, but wrong advice. Her advice was focused on getting relief, not enduring to the end. 
Getting the relief from adversity is not the end goal. It's not the end goal. The goal is to respond to adversity in a biblical way. How is that? By acknowledging God is sovereign over all. He will give me the grace that I need to endure this. The first, I've got to go to Peter. I'm sorry. I'm going to 1 Peter again. 1 Peter, that letter is devoted to the correct response to adversity. When Nero was persecuting believers, Peter didn't say, run for the hills. Get out of there. He didn't say, get your guns. We're going to overthrow Rome. He didn't say any of that. Peter in chapter 1 verse 4 encourages the believers that their inheritance was in heaven. Greatly rejoice. Greatly rejoice of the truth of what God has done. Of your salvation. In verse 6 he says this adversity is for a little while. It's not for eternity. Get your thinking squared away. Get it biblical. Get it biblical. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, Peter exhorts the believers, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul, by keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Did you get that? He's talking about excellent behavior. Conduct yourself with excellent behavior. Their response to adversity was a witnessing tool to the Gentiles. Peter goes on the rest of the letter and gives practical ways to have excellent conduct. He talks about submission. He talks about loving the brethren and doing it intentionally, not by mistake. Six, Job's friends did not advise him on what to do or why this was happening, but rather sat with him in silence for seven days. Some of us might have a hard time for seven minutes not saying anything. They sat for seven days in silence. Sometimes it's hard to approach people that are suffering. I'm sure you've had that experience. Somebody that's suffered loss. What do you say to them? What, how do you comfort them? Sometimes we just need to be honest and say, I, I don't know what to say, but I'm here for you. I love you. I'm here for you. I'm here and I will be praying for you. And not just say, I'm going to pray that God will bless you. No, no. Let's get specific. Pray that they would thank God for all that he has done for them. 
Pray that they would serve him in some way through all this. Pray that they would read scripture that would calm their fears. Pray specifics for them. And in closing, the seventh one is, it is okay to grieve over loss. God has given us emotions. And one of those emotions is grief. There isn't a command, thou shalt not grieve. Okay? Jesus grieved at the death of one he loved. That was Lazarus. He grieved. But let me, let me add on to that. Don't get stuck in your grief. Because when you do, you become self-centered and think, woe is me. I'm in this grief. Okay? Let me close with this one reference to Job that I hope encourages you. It's James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. James writes, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for his precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You, too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance or the steadfastness of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. We serve a great God. We serve one that is concerned about you. And as a believer, what a great hope we have. The fact that Christ has died for our sins. This is not the end. We will not suffer eternal judgment, but that we will have life with him forever. What a great, great hope we have. I'd like to uh, sing one song, and I think it's appropriate. And we're going to sing just one verse of that song.